It's that crime of the month with Nicola Graham and Christiana Brockbank. In this podcast, we'll be diving into a story on a subject that's pretty bloody taboo, happens on the regular, and generally affects women way more than men. Yep, it's true crime. Giddy, like a giddy kip. Is it the weather? <laughs> I think it might be the wine. Is it the weather that's turned Could us? be the wine. But this, I've, this, I've not even had a sip of it yet. <laughs> might calm me down. Did you have a nice birthday? It was your birthday a couple of days ago. It was, yeah. I mean, the weather was dog shit. And it, I think it's been dog shit for like the last four years. I said to my mum, like, maybe this is just it, like bad weather every birthday. She was like, it was glorious when you were born. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Oh, yeah, on that one year. Yeah, 33 years ago. She's probably annoyed that she wasn't able to go. <laughs> yeah, she was stuck in hospital. That's why I would be if I had a kid. I'd be like, God, it was bloody 26 degrees that day. Yeah, my partner said, let's go to Kew Gardens. Oh. So I was like, okay, yeah, up for that. So you could go, if you remember, you could go and go around. You had to, like, book a slot. So I was like, yeah, okay. And then I think, like, a few times I've said, how long is it there? And he's like, oh, like an hour. So I'm like, okay. I can do that. I've done like an hour and a half max on my little bike. So bearing in mind, raining. But, you know, I'm happy. I'm excited. I'm like, oh, you know, he's got a day off work. You know, we're going to go. It'll be exciting. Two hours, 10 minutes. I was going to say, because it's like West London, isn't it? Yeah, but like way wester than West London. It's You don't realise how far it is. Yeah, it's like near Richmond. Yeah, I think Richmond's like the next stop on the DLR or the Overground or something. He was in front of me. He's always in front of me because I'm still a bit not very good. Cycling proficiency and everything. So he goes in front of me. Every time he looked back, he said it was like, it was like seeing E.T. a pissed off wet E.T. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was fuming. Whenever I caught up to him at uh, lights, I was like, how long now? And he was like, I think we've just got over halfway. And I'm like, what? I was trying to be keep it under control. The rage. Because I was thinking, it's come from a nice place. He's doing, you know, he just wants to do a nice thing for my birthday. But I was like, fucking joke. Anyway, it was nice. We got pissed when we were there. We had a bottle of champagne. It was fine. That We were like, we got there. We were like, because I said, what time does our slot? And he was like, 12.45. And then I was like, what time are we going to get there? And he was like, it's touch and go. And he was like, I think we'll be able to be late. And I said, he was like... Yeah, it's 12 to 12 till 12.45, the slot. And I was like, yeah, because the 45 minutes is if you're late. It's not 1.15. I said, we've got that 45 minutes. We should have been there at 12, not 1 o'clock. Anyway, they, were, they couldn't have given an ounce of shit. Oh, so they just let you in? Yeah, they weren't bothered at all. It's just kids, isn't it? They're not bothered. And then I'd got a new helmet, like a mirrored helmet for my birthday from his parents. Uh, first day on, he dropped it on the floor. Got all like little stone marks on it. Apart from that, though, it was wonderful. <laughs> If he listens to this. So did you cycle all the way back as well? No, we got the... Because we, we were there for like a couple of hours, two and a half hours. So we got the overground for a few stops because it was like dead. Because it was like, it wasn't rush hour. Okay. Uh, we wore our masks, but there wasn't, like I said, there was hardly none on there. Because you can't take your bikes. I mean, I could take my bike it's folding on the underground, but neither of... I don't want to go on the underground again for like at least five years. Um, full on fear of going on there. And then, yeah, we got off and cycled the rest of the way. And it was throwing it down. Oh. Well, apart from that, it was fine. Yeah, it's better than just, like, staying in, I guess. Exactly. And again, another lovely anecdote. <laughs> another thing to remember and laugh about. Yeah. But no, it was it was fine. It was lovely. 
You can't say that about your birthday, can you? It was fine. And fine for me is like, it was atrocious. <laughs> oh. And I got your gift. Oh. So basically, did we, have we spoke about me getting a potato ricer and then breaking it by trying to squeeze oranges? Have we spoken about this? Yeah, because we were talking about it in the periodical, you said about the, that you had a potato ricer from Ikea because Tom let you buy whatever you wanted and you picked, <laughs> you picked a potato ricer. You said we take one thing and I picked a potato ricer. But you should have actually picked a juicer because you broke it juicing some oranges. Juicing oranges. <laughs> <laughs> and do you know, did you know that you can use it as a juicer as well? You one? told me that in your, did you put it on your little gift card? I was like, amazing. Yeah. I didn't know if you'd seen it. Yeah. I was like, thrilled. But I don't know if that's true because it is from, it is from Amazon. So it could be a lie. They could just be saying that. And if I'd broke it again, bent the arm again, I'd be like, bloody hell. I wouldn't be able to tell you. I'd be mortified. I'd be like, I just, <sighs> You might come and stay and be like, where's the where's the mince? And I'd be like, oh. I love some orange juice. <laughs> I'd be like, no problem after that. <laughs> Squeezing it by hand. <laughs> I've not really got any news again. I've been watching a lot of like, have you heard of The Innocence Files on Netflix? I've heard of them and not watched them. And these people that have gone to prison. Yeah. But were they like coerced? No, so it's, um well... It, it's a few different cases, um, and it's done by the Innocence Project, the people that basically take on cases that they th- they believe like were p- innocent people have been put in jail. I think if I'd not chosen to do comedy writing, I think now I would want to be an Innocence Project lawyer, even though I have no, <laughs> like I've never done law or anything. But just because like the work, that it's a, it's amazing that there's like people that are in jail for like thirty years. I think it's about four cases, and three out of the four are like obviously black people just like highlights the prejudices and everything against Mm. black people especially well in america and here as well and yeah it's really good like it is quite uplifting because they all i mean they all seem to be at peace with the fact that they've just been like completely done over by like the system i mean obviously they're angry but like it's amazing that they come out of it and are able to carry on but yeah i really recommend it do they get a big payout yeah i think they all did because that's what happened with Stephen Avery, wasn't it? That he was in prison for rape and then they proved that it wasn't him and then he was going to get that massive payout. And then now it's like, did the police sort of broom over and finger him for this crime? Yeah, they usually do, but they usually get payouts. But I think, I can't remember. Oh no, this is another. See, I've been watching like so much of this like really depressing TV, <laughs> like all the docu, like true crime sort of documentaries there's um, another one called trial by media and there's a case on that about four black guys that are on the subway and they bait this white guy just decides to shoot them all and there's no real evidence that they were attacking him or anything oh i was watching that and they go to court to because he doesn't get he gets acquitted this guy it's awful like he's just this horrible human being the guy that shoots the like four kids and he gets acquitted i mean i should uh, it's a spoilers but yeah so if you want to watch it don't listen to this but he gets acquitted and then they take him to a civil civil um court and they sue him for like i think 50 million and i think they get 47 because it's like this particular guy he's in a wheelchair for the rest of his life he had brain damage and everything but then the guy just files bankruptcy and so they just don't see anything at least with the innocence files they're suing the state so there's like resource is put aside to give that compensation but if it's a guy they can just claim bankruptcy and doesn't have to pay 
which is crazy. So yeah, it's like what John John Bobbitt did when he filed bankruptcy, so he didn't have to pay his fees. Exactly. Which actually leads me on to I was on. I don't think I was on Reddit. I think it just popped up on my phone. Got a little notification. Love a Reddit notification. And it was saying, do you remember that I said that one of the articles I read, I don't know if it was a Vanity Fair one, and they'd gone to interview John Wayne at his house, and it was about the Bob Ross and everything. And then they would talk to him, and he said, like, what do you do now? And he's like, oh, and he claims disability because he'd been in that car, he gets accident. And he goes into the Rockies and looks for that treasure that was left by Forrest Ben. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. I've seen this. <laughs> so the treasure... <laughs> Has been found, but not by John Wayne. <laughs> What's he going to do now? Do you know what? I saw the headline and I was like, I wonder if it was John... That's the John Wayne thing, the John Wayne Bobbitt thing. I wonder if it was him. Maybe he found it. Yeah, so this forest forest fan <laughs> put a chest just contained gems, gold and antiques worth up to 2 million in the Rocky Mountains 10 years ago. It's not been announced... To be fair, it's not been announced who's won it. Won it. Or who found it. But I mean, not being funny. If John Wayne found it, it'll be all over the TV. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad he didn't get it. He doesn't deserve it. No. But what's he going to do with his life now? That was all he did. I don't know. Could start a podcast. (laughs) Oh, God. Can you cope? I've been watching a lot of TV, but it is in relation to what we're doing now. That's why I've been watching loads of TV. Because it's... (laughs) <laughs> it's a documentary series called Dark Side of the Ring. Which sounds... It sounds a bit dodgy. <laughs> Someone's not had a wax. But it's actually about wrestling. I've not watched wrestling for... Oh my gosh. What year are we in? We do this every time. Every time I have to call back to what year it is, I'm like, 2020. Yeah, we're 2020 now. I would say that it's been a good 25 years since I watched it. Because I used to... I basically only watched it because my sisters watched it. You were like around the sort of Hulk Hogan-y time, weren't you? Yeah. So like the early 90s, I think. It would be like Brett the Hitman Hart, The Undertaker, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Do you remember him? Yep. I think he's dead. Yeah, R.I.P. I feel like everything we're going to say will be like, they're dead. They're dead. I know, yeah, they're dead. <laughs> but you watched it a little bit later. Did you watch it with your brother, mainly? Yeah, so we watched it sort of that period as well. I remember having a Royal Rumble VHS, and I think it was 96. It's weird that that would be on video and you just keep watching that. Yeah. Because you know he's going to win. It's so bizarre. But yeah, so remember those wrestlers, but then I watched it and became a mega fan. I guess late 90s early noughties because i was like oh i was gonna wear my rock i've got a rock american football t-shirt <laughs> that i've got i was a mega rock fan not so into him now in his films but yeah loved the rock loved chris jericho or y2j um <laughs> i think i remember sean michaels coming back and then brett brett the hitman heart like they all kept doing that rick flair came back hulk hogan came back but yeah i started what well, i watched it for i don't know a period of maybe like five six seven years and then when it sort of became like, I think he bought like WCW and then it was all confusing. I didn't, and people were going to different, I think WCW was the harder, more hardcore wrestlers. And then wrestlers left WWE to go to WCW and it just got a bit convoluted. So I was like, no. And I probably was growing up and didn't want to be associated with wrestling anymore. But I watched all these in anticipation of what we're doing. It got me proper back in the mood to watch wrestling there. Did it? Yeah. See, I, yeah. So I like only watched it pretty much up until it was like, WWF and then the World uh, World Wildlife Foundation or fund they uh, sued them didn't yeah they? so it changed to WWE so I really don't I think you you sound like you're more of a hardcore fan than I was although I did get really told off at school once because um, we had like a playground and there was steps leading up to it and 
there were ropes like tied around in a square. Oh, nice. Like a ring. Yeah, like a ring. And I was like, I like went in and I was like doing all the moves and like, you know, when you're rocking back on the thing. And one of the dinner ladies shouted at me. I was like, hi, get out of there. And I was like, oh, like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And apparently it had been roped off with a skipping rope. That's not appropriate. Use some like hazard tape or something. Why did it be roped off? Because I'd not realised there was like a broken step. Oh. Yeah, so then I cried because I got told off and I didn't mean to do anything. I was just, yeah, I was just trying to do some wrestling moves. Respect. We've all been there. I thought you were going to say like someone had been sick and they'd put like some... No, sawdust. Sawdust down. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She wants to be sick. What'd you get? Sawdust. Oh, grim. It's just weird because you grow up and you don't really... I mean, I wouldn't even know now. I wouldn't be able to name a wrestler. Is it still going then? Yeah, I think so. I think the thing that I don't like about it the most is that the, just the acting's pretty ropey, isn't it? Like, it is it is quite cheesy. I was watching some clips. That, to me, though, was finding out that wrestling wasn't real was like when you find out... Oh, spoiler, Santa's not real. Yeah. <laughs> don't know who yeah. <laughs> age of our listeners is. But yeah, like, finding... I was like, oh, what? Because to me, it looked... Even watching it yesterday, I was like, some of it looks like proper, you know? Because, I mean, that's the thing. People did actually get hurt in the ring and people broke their necks and things and their careers ended and sort of constant concussions and things like that. And, oh, my God, people died. <laughs> Main thing. So it is fake, but the the actual fight, like the wrestling, although it's, like, staged... It's they're like really physically putting themselves under strain and hurting themselves. That's the thing. It's you've got people there saying, "Well, it's fake. It's just you know, it's just acting." But then actually, it's panto, isn't it? Yeah, but the physicality, the trauma they put their bodies through, and the fact now is that I mean, I only know up to. I remember the WWE wellness program being brought in. And at that point, seeing loads of wrestlers who had previously were super like trim, not trim, but like say they were massive, but they had no fat on them. Suddenly they came back and they were quite podgy. And I remember at the time thinking like, oh, and it's because of this wellness program because they were trying to stop people doing steroids and things. Well, could you imagine constantly on the move, constantly traveling for like nine months of the year and just exercising every minute of every day? essentially to keep your physique because that is that's where your money's coming from yeah like to get a bit of an insight into that sort of thing it's really good to watch the the luther who did a documentary didn't he when he went into the like wrestling world and he trained with them and they basically made him throw up it was that hard <laughs> like but yeah i'd recommend watching that and that's the thing even though it's not real fighting they're still physically i mean like when you see them they're like constantly just dripping with sweat like it's so physical isn't it it's mad this leads on to who we're gonna do we're gonna do the i mean i guess the murder suicide of chris benoit with a spoiler there but i mean i think a lot of people probably know this not in the, hopefully the detail that we're going to go into it but we are going to talk a lot about wrestling so we'll try and explain any terms or like the actual sort of business structure and things so that people can sort of understand it a bit we're not experts i'm definitely not but we'll try and break it down should i begin yeah go for it okay chris michael benoit was born on the 21st of may 1967 in montreal quebec that's Canada. But he grew up in Edmonton, Alberta. He was the son of Michael and Margaret Benoit. Benoit's father said that Chris was obsessive as a child. He was completely in love with the idea of being a wrestler. When he was 12 years old, he attended a local wrestling event where he saw Brett the Hitman Hart, Chris's fave, yeah. <laughs> and Tom Billington perform. Benoit was inspired. He wrestled at school, all through high school, won numerous awards um, in wrestling and bodybuilding, and was completely focused on becoming the best wrestler he could be. After high school, he trained to become a wrestler 
wrestler at the Hart Family Dungeon. So this is an actual training school in the basement of the Hart Mansion. It doesn't sound right, does it? Like, oh, just off to the dungeon. Sounds like, like, BDSM. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't surprise me. If you don't know anything about wrestling, the Hearts were a, a, like a super famous family of wrestlers. So there was Brett Owen, the father was a wrestler, and they trained loads of wrestlers that became really famous. Benoit adopted a similar style to Brett, which was the high risk, sort of high flying style. So jumping off top ropes and doing a lot of sort of acrobatics. He even adopted the sharpshooter move, which became his finisher. A finisher is is a move that you do to hopefully get that person to tap out or, yeah, finish people off so the ref will um, count to three and you've won. I actually looked back at some photos of Brett the Hitman Hart and his outfit is ridiculous. Like, he he seems confused by the weather. Like, he's got on a really skimpy leotard. And, like, you know, the sunglasses that old people wear to stop, like, help them with cataracts. Yeah, they're like roll, I think they're like roll ones, aren't they? Or something like you'd have to roll <laughs> them open so they could be yeah. to your face. Grossed me out when they had wet hair. Yeah. So obviously they pour water on themselves. I guess to like shine the muscles up and everything. Is it not like oil or like gel? It looked like it always looked really slick, didn't it? Could be, yeah. Oh, Triple H used to like pour a bottle and then spurt a bit, put drink a bit and then spurt a bit out. So it was like all wet all over him. Mm-hmm. Kind of sexy, but gross. It's very sexual. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? With bear in mind, probably the key sort of main audience is just like little kids. Yeah. Weird. And then he, yeah, he had like a big thick leather jacket on top as well. Seems a bit over the top. But it was a look. It was definitely a look. <laughs> certainly a look a look that no one copied yeah. but it was brett's i do recommend if you if you are remotely interested in this do like look at clips on youtube and stuff because it's cr- the like 80s and 90s was crustle cracking outfits rick flair and hulk hogan so back to chris he debuted in november 1985 under the stampede wrestling promotion so all across america there's different promotions so there'd be like promotions in florida and all, all different states and then you'd get a name for yourself and then you'd like you get booked by another wrestling company to go and do their promotions and things so that's sort of how it works when you're in sort of the minor leagues so you could see how influenced he was by Hart and Bellington. He, like I said, he used Brett's move, the sharpshooter, and he used the diving headbutt. Due to his ferocious speed inside the ring and his sheer physical strength, he earned the nickname Dynamite. He made his mark during this time at Stampede, winning four British Commonwealth titles and four international tag team titles. Interest started coming in from the bigger leagues. In 1989, he moved to Japan for the New Japan Pro Wrestling. So wrestling is massive in Japan. He performed under the name The Pegasus Kid and became a big name there. He won the Best of Super Juniors tournament twice. Sorry, I don't really know what that is. Just a tournament. Sounds good though. And won the Super J Cup tournament we are going to talk about sort of other wrestlers, but one wrestler in particular, Eddie Guerrero, is going to come up a bit later, and this is where he met Eddie Guerrero in Japan. So I think at first they weren't they weren't that friendly, but they became like best friends, like best 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 friends, maybe even lovers. Yeah, it's very yeah. We'll talk about it. Um, so in 1992, he moved to WCW. So that was the World Championship Wrestling promotion. I always, I don't know if this is a generalization, but I believe WCW is sort of the more hardcore, is more hardcore than WWF because WWF went out to sort of loads of people, televised and kids. That It was a bit more tame. It wasn't as as hardcore as WCW. There's a lot of like clips where you see where people are like dripping with blood and stuff. Yeah. So it used to be in like the... I think until sort of the noughties, you could um, get, get hit by chairs and ladders and bleed and things. And I think now you're not allowed to because of things like this that happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
For reasons that will become clear. Yeah, they'll become very clear shortly. He went to WCW because New Japan Pro Wrestling had a talent exchange program. So a lot of promotion, like companies did this where they just, someone would go and move over to there and then they'd move back and then they'd move back. And so everyone, all wrestlers were like all over the place. So he'd done two years at WCW and then 1994 he moved to ECW, which was extreme championship wrestlers. So that was even more niche than WCW. That was really where it was, you know, really intense, throwing themselves off top rope, hitting each other with chairs and things. It was really, as it says in the name, extreme. He had a lot of feuds with well-known popular wrestlers, which gained him notoriety. So at this point in his career, he was a heel. When you're a wrestler, you're either a face or a heel. So a face means you're a popular person. The crowd wants you to win. The heel means you're a bad guy. It was at ECW where he gained the nickname Crippler Benoit. And this was to do with one of his moves called the Crippler Crossface, which is essentially where he'd almost like sit on your back and then pull your face sort of towards, like, the so it would, like, literally pull on your back. It's like a bit of a headlock, isn't it? A bit of a, yeah, a bit of a headlock and, um, like a submission move. So you tap out because, like, you basically can't breathe and it's, it's pulling your back back. So in 1999, he had become so unhappy with the management at WCW because the big guys were getting the main events. And if you get the main events, then you get the fame and then you get the money. So he signed a contract with WWF. So Benoit was a high flyer, which means that he was small and quick and did a lot of moves off the top rope. And they're considered like daredevils and really exciting to watch. But because they're not the big guys like The Rock or Stone Cold Steve Austin or Triple H, they don't, you know, physically presence-wise, they didn't often get the opportunities that those people would. Yeah, in the Dark Side of the Ring documentary, they talk about him being like a workhorse, don't they? Like he really worked hard all the time because he had to sort of make up for the fact that he wasn't as big as some of the other guys, like the really top rung people. Yeah, and Chris Jericho, who he ends up having a career long feud, well, when he gets to WWF with Chris Benoit, because if you were smaller, you'd go for the Intercontinental Championship. So rather than the heavyweight, you'd go for Intercontinental. And because Benoit and Jericho were a similar size. They were always fighting for the Intercontinental Championship. Jericho says there's a moment when he Benoit misses something. He misses a reaction to one of Jericho's kicks. And then backstage later, he sees him doing like squats. And he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm, I'm doing squats because I missed that reaction. And he's like, someone told you to do this. He's like, no, I'm just doing it myself. And so I teach myself not to do it again. He was like, this is the kind of guy he was like he hated messing up he hated anyone thinking that he'd not done his job but I mean a lot of people say don't they in this documentary and from things I read that he was so hardworking, so hardworking, and just completely dedicated to putting on an amazing show so he debuted with Eddie Guerrero at this point is one of his closest friends Dean Malenko and Saturn joined them and they formed the group The Radicals with a Z Ugh. Triple H joined later so Triple H was massive um, so they became known as Feel Faction when Triple H joined them another great name <laughs> Feel, Feel Faction it's horrible it feels like they just ran out of names so they're just like oh yeah that sounds okay I feel like using a Z instead of an S it's like as bad as using the number four instead of the word four oh it makes me cringe this is very sort of 90s noughties isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. but I'd be like oh yeah feel affection now I'm like that's tragic Benoit scored his first title victory in a triple threat threat match against Chris Jericho and Kurt Angle. So triple threat means that three people are fighting each other, basically. So it's just that extra element of fun and surprise. And that was for the Intercontinental Championship in 2000. And that was the beginning, like I said, of the rivalry between Jericho and Benoit, which lasted for years. 
Um, oh, I used to love watching them fight. It was so good. When you knew there was a Chris Jericho and uh, Chris Benoit match on, it was like, oh, they were always like on main events, like pay-per-views. So interesting, isn't it? Because you don't really hear about him now, but you hear about the others. Yeah. But he's been erased from history. Like I said, that's how I remember Chris Benoit, like from this period of time when he was throwing himself off the top rope and crippler cross-facing people so they'd submit. And me and Andrew, my brother, we'd cripple cross-face each other and practice like figure four leg locks and things. Oh, in a different room seeing if we could get him to submit it's just you know <laughs> as you do so he wasn't a big talker like his character he wasn't a big talker but he was even now if what everyone knows they sort of said he was one of the most accomplished wrestlers ever to grace WWE unfortunately just can't be acknowledged he had 22 major wrestling titles to his name. After breaking up with the Radicals in early 2001, um, Benoit started a feud with Kurt Angle and stole his Olympic gold medal. So that rivalry lasted for days with single fights and tag team matches. So again, someone like Kurt Angle, very big. So he was always at sort of the, at this point, the sort of top echelon of wrestling. He was fighting people that were, you know, big names. So he wasn't like a mid-card. He was really, really, really well-known. So in 2002, the first WWE draft moved him to SmackDown. So they had Raw and SmackDown, two different shows. Raw was a bit more... Raw. Yeah, Raw was a bit more Raw and SmackDown was a bit more family-friendly. So despite his ongoing feud with Kurt Angle, he partnered up with him to become the first WWE Tag Team Champions. And then this, he and then he was given a title shot at WrestleMania by winning the Royal Rumble match in 2004. So this was WrestleMania 20. So... In wrestling, they do pay-per-views, so people like me in England could watch, pay 20 quid and watch it, and it was like two in the morning. You could watch it live in America, and it was, it was in any, it could be in any state. So there was like two televised shows, then they were performing all the other nights, but just not televised, and then they were doing pay-per-views as well. So it's like, that's how relentless being a professional wrestler is. So yeah, at WrestleMania 20, he won the World Heavyweight Championship by defeating Triple H for the title match. That was probably the pinnacle of his career, because that's like the biggest because he wasn't a heavyweight either anyone could go for them but yeah for him to beat Triple H at Wrestlemania did lose it to Edge a few months later though so in that case <laughs> they would know that that was going to happen so it'd be sort of scripted that yeah so basically from at the time I knew that they would it was always known but I thought they just were sort of told right Triple H you're gonna you're gonna lose and Benoit's going to win and they just sort of saw how it unfolded in the ring but from watching the Dark Side of the Ring documentary apparently I think it's pretty much choreographed yeah I, that's what I thought but that's why I don't get why these championships because it's not like they are sporting titles that were actually it's like an even playing field and everyone's got a chance to win it's like oh no it's, it's written that he's going to win this championship yeah I mean I think you have to I mean that's what I did I presume suspended my disbelief especially Especially with when I watched it, it was very much like a soap opera, which I presume it's, it is now. And it was very much about something. There might have been a woman involved or someone had done something to piss another person off. And it was all that building up like a soap. And that's the thing that all these storylines always escalated at a pay-per-view. That's where they climaxed at the, at the pay-per-views because obviously that's why I would get people to pay. And it was just done so, so well because you knew that it was all ridiculous, but especially sort of when I watched it, it just got crazy. And on that documentary, one of the writers who was around around that period, Vince Russo, he sort of said, I like Jerry Springer. And that's when I moved into writing. That's why I wrote it like, like it was Jerry Springer. So that's really what it was. It was just drama, crazy storylines. 
a lot of females, if they're not wrestlers and they're just accompanying a wrestler to the ring, they're called valets. So occasionally a valet would be on the side of a ring, like, I don't know, checking on her wrestler that she'd accompanied because he was passed out. So then someone would, like, get thrown at her, say, like, there's loads of them in the ring, and then she'd fall onto the floor and be passed out and then say another wrestler would go and carry her off and then they'd fall in love and then there would then be a feud between the wrestler who'd carried her off and the wrestler she was valeting. You know what I mean? So it was all stuff like that. So what you're saying is it's not the greatest example of feminism like in terms of representation (laughs) i certainly wouldn't say i mean i think it's got better because i know when i watched there was female wrestlers i mean i think the representations of female wrestlers was either very basic simplified stereotypes so you were either a hot wrestler girl wrestler so you wore like hardly any clothes you had massive implants because a lot of them were like phys- sort of physically you could tell they were toned but they would fight and then I don't know the top would pop off or something and you'd see their bra mm. and it was that kind of like titillating sort of fight but then there was people like oh she called Lu- Luna or like China but they were sort of butched up versions so they were just like feminine wrestlers so they wore clothes that men wore long pants or and like a or like a crop top obviously but they would do what the men did they would jump off the top row they wouldn't really get themselves involved in storylines that were to do with like love or anything like that i mean they did occasionally but like china china fought the guys so eddie guerrero i want to just talk about eddie guerrero because you need to know this backstory to look at chris benoit's crimes and maybe gives you several options that you can think about of why why he did what he did not there's any excuse why but there's potentially a lot of reasons why he did it so eddie guerrero like i said they made friends when they went to Japan and they became like mega friends. So when Chris Benoit win the heavyweight championship at WrestleMania 20, Guerrero had just won a championship. I can't remember what. Obviously not as good as heavyweight. That was the last get match of the whole thing. But Guerrero actually comes out into the ring and hugs Benoit and they're both crying. So like it sort of shows that their relationship and friendship. Guerrero was a heel most of his career, but became a face between 2003 and 2005. Throughout his whole career, Guerrero had a lot of issues with drugs so drugs like recreational drugs steroids he ended up having three DUIs he was turning up to work under the influence his marriage broke down he ended up moving out of his home he eventually got clean this is when he became a face not actually that long after Chris won the heavyweight championship Guerrero he actually died of heart disease and he was only 38 years old that's really young isn't it Um, and it was his nephew that found him Chavo Guerrero Jr basically what happened was that they he'd had a wake-up call at the hotel and he'd not answered answered it and so the hotel staff rang Chavo and said we think there might be something wrong can you come and help go to his room so they went with the security guard and the latch was still on so they knew that someone was still in there security guard cut the latch and they found him in the bathroom like obviously from the night before he was in his underwear and collapsed and he was holding his toothbrush still and um, Chavo says that he was still alive at that point but he passed away in his arms which must be heartbreaking as it is but like obviously he was family as well so he goes and tells well he I think he phones Chris who's like downstairs in the lobby ready to go because it's the morning um, and he says that he just hears like this wail huge wail he was obviously absolutely devastated because it is I think it's like characterised by like almost a brotherly 
love really intense feeling well people sort of say in the documentary that it was like he'd lost his spouse it was that kind of absolutely profound grief and there was a raw tribute episode to Eddie Guerrero Um, so if anyone dies WWE will just do a tribute episode to you it happens a lot though doesn't it like so many wrestlers yeah oh yeah at the end I'll mention about the ridiculous amounts of wrestler deaths but yeah so they basically someone's died they'll do a tribute episode and then they'll get other wrestlers that knew them well and work with them on and they sort of do like a little eulogy but Ben was if you see him on Eddie Gregos, he's literally like head in his hands sobbing why you'd let someone who was that distraught and that traumatised to go on TV. Mm. A lot of people said that they'd never seen Benoit show that much emotion ever, especially not to like that extent. He was someone who was very quiet, kept sort of kept himself to himself, but everyone knew him as quite friendly and kind, but he didn't really express any emotion. Yeah, he just totally broke down, didn't he? And, and, and I think this feels like the beginning of the end for him. It is definitely a catalyst that leads on to other things. Timeline-wise, this is two years before, isn't it? It seems to have like this intense sort of, I guess it's only could only be described as depression and grief where he actually they spend a lot of time with Guerrero's wife and family and that like a lot of the time she would find she'd go upstairs and find him on their marital bed on Eddie's side like hugging the pillow and like sobbing. Eddie Guerrero's wife says like Eddie had a beautiful gym upstairs and a couple of times their daughters would come down and say oh Chris is crying in there again. It does feel like how someone would react to like someone dying that they'd never been able to openly express how much they love them. Yeah. Or like, yeah, losing the love of your life. And then he, he can't express it because he, he can't talk about it. Yeah, whether it was unrequited love. Maybe Eddie Guerrero didn't know anything about it. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just a really intense friendship, like that they were soulmates without there being a romantic element. But it just... It does seem like his wife must have been thinking like, I'm the one that's supposed to be like that, not you. And like the girls, like the children being like, oh, you're crying over my dad. Well, I've not got my dad anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our grief, I'm sure, comes in lots of different shapes and sizes, but it just feels, from what people are saying on the documentary, not even us, but from what people are saying on the documentary, it was very strange. Like it seemed strange to them because he was someone who'd never expressed himself. I mean, maybe that's the reason because he just didn't know how to express himself. Then when something absolutely traumatic happened, it was then came out in a completely uncontrolled way. It could be partly as well that, you know, he maybe saw some of what was happening with him could happen. You know, it's no secret that they're on steroids and that like that is really harmful to your heart and that he died of, you know, heart disease. Whether it was that sort of like, or realising that the lifestyle leads to. He started asking, himself backstage and his wife's sister said that he also became very paranoid and started taking like different cars and different routes to the gym because he was saying like oh people could like try and kidnap me or kidnap my family and it just she said it, it, he just seemed weird and she sort of says doesn't she that it's, that's when it, he changed they did get him a journal because they thought that, that might help him with his depression and they said like this journal use it to write to Eddie and after that they said that it seemed to have a therapeutic effect on him because he did sort of open up more and maybe sort of become a bit more like his old self. After this, he became the WD United States champion after defeating Booker T in a title shot and made a return to ECW in 2007 for a brief period of time. There he earned a match for the ECW World Heavyweight Championship, but he backed out due to a family emergency, one which, as the news family came out, left the world in a state of extreme shock. 
and disbelief. So we will get to that, a family emergency. But first, I think it would be good if we just spoke about his personal life a bit and spoke about what his family situation was. Benoit was married twice. His first wife was called Martina, but by 1997, this marriage had broken down. Um, He did have two children with her, though, David and Megan. And David is, I believe, a wrestler, from what I've read. Is he the one that's in the documentary? Yeah. Yeah, he seems like a massive fan of wrestling, at least. Yeah, and he completely idolises his dad. Yes, the marriage ended. Nancy Sullivan was born on May the 17th, 1964 in Boston, Massachusetts and was best known as a professional wrestling valet and as a wrestler called Woman for ECW and WCW in the mid-1990s. She got her head start into wrestling when she became the cover girl for the June 1984 edition of Wrestling All-Stars magazine. On this shoot, she met Kevin Sullivan. So Kevin Sullivan was a wrestler, a promoter and a booker. He would become her second husband. Uh, He convinced her to become one of his entourage so after months of trying to persuade her she agreed and she took the ring name Fallen Angel and debuted on June the 30th 1984. Sullivan had sort of a gimmicky satanist sort of like little group going with wrestlers so she was this Fallen Angel um, and pretended she was possessed and things. Probably around the same time that all the satanic panic stuff was big. I was thinking that yeah that, they love doing that capitalising on sort of things that everyone's traumatised about. So she married Sullivan in 1984. Her wrestling career progressed and she had stints in WCW and ECW and then back to WCW so again like moving between companies. She eventually took the name Woman and essentially managed some of the talent on screen becoming involved in storylines with like massive names like Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage and then eventually Chris Benoit. One of the storylines in 1996 was that Benoit was feuding with Nancy's real-life husband, Kevin Sullivan. So the there was footage of Benoit and Nancy, like, canoodling, and Benoit saying, what did he say? He said, you consider yourself the master of human chess. Well, my bishop just took your queen. Uh, so it was like, this, this is kind of cheese we're dealing with here. So eventually this on-screen storyline developed into a real affair off-screen, and according to Nancy, Nancy's sister, she said the joke in the business is that Kevin Sullivan booked his own divorce, because he booked... Benoit. But then there's stuff as well, like that towards the end of their relationship, Kevin Sullivan had become physically abusive, and that on one occasion Nancy turned up to Dean Malenko's wife's office, Julie, and she had a black eye, and so Julie told her she needed to get away from him. Yeah, there's quite a few instances. I think it's sort of mentioned that Chris Benoit would be there to sort of support her. Yeah, and protect her. By 1997, so the same year that Benoit's marriage ended, Nancy and, Sul- and Kevin got a divorce. Her final appearance as woman took place on the 26th of May 1997 when she accompanied Benoit out onto the stage. No explanation was ever given as to why a woman left and she was never mentioned on WCW again. But from the documentary, it sort of showed she did want, she wanted to sort of start a family. She wanted to have a home and to be, I guess, not traveling around all the time. She wanted that stability. On the 25th of February 2000, Chris and Nancy's child Daniel was born. And then on the 19th of August 2003, so three years later, Nancy filed for divorce from Chris. I found the legal papers, I think, of everything that she'd ever submitted on TMZ. Don't at me. I know it's a horrendous website. So there was the temporary protective order on there. So I read through it and it's pretty atrocious. So it says that the respondent is a professional wrestler and considerably larger and stronger than the petitioner. The respondent lost his temper and threatened to strike the petitioner and cause extensive damage to the home 
and personal belongings of the parties, including furniture and furnishings. It also said, at the time of their common law marriage, the defendant asked his wife to abandon her professional wrestling career to be his wife and operate the corporation business and to assist in advancing his career. See, that makes it sound like it it wasn't as much of her idea that she wanted to settle down, that she was basically forced into settling down. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Patriarchy. So it's like that, where she's saying this, but then in the documentary, was it her sister that said? Mm. But yeah, I don't know. Well, it's probably a bit of both, like just you don't have to be one or the other like and maybe she did at the time and then think right well now i want to get back into it it's depressing to think that he had sort of looked after her when she was suffering the other physical abuse by yet another like huge guy because she wasn't very big was she she was not very tall like she was petite and these like huge men are basically beating her up like that's what she just has to live with that she's just a target for violent outbursts of these wrestlers she filed the temporary restraining order and the divorce petition in 2003 but then by 2006, she'd cancelled them. She didn't want the divorce and she had cancelled the temporary restraining order. So everything seemingly back on track with the marriage. Probably best going on to the crime now. The crimes occurred over three days between the 22nd of June to the 24th in 2007. On Saturday 23rd of June, Chavo Guerrero, who we've mentioned, Eddie Guerrero's nephew, who was very good friends with Chris Benoit, he received a voicemail from Benoit saying that he'd overslept and he'd missed his flight and he'd be late for that night's show. Guerrero called Benoit back and noted that Benoit sounded tired whilst he confirmed everything he said on the voicemail. So the call ended, and then Guerrero thought back and knew he didn't sound right, so then tried to call him back 12 minutes after the phone call, because he was concerned, but Benoit didn't answer. Benoit then called him back, claiming, sorry, but he'd been on the phone to Delta Airlines trying to get a later flight out. So it's on this call to Chavo that he says that Nancy and Daniel were up throughout the night with food poisoning, which is why Benoit had slept in and missed his flight. So another co-worker called Benoit around this time and Benoit repeated this story saying that Nancy was vomiting blood and Daniel was vomiting. On Sunday morning, between the hours of 3.51am and 3.58am, five text messages were sent to co-workers off Nancy's and Chris Benoit's phones. Four texts said the house address and the fifth text said that the dogs were in the enclosed pool area and that the side door to the garage was left open. During this time, Benoit also called WWE's Talent Relations Office where he repeated the story but he'd slightly amended it to say that Daniel was vomiting and that he and Nancy had gone to the hospital with him. He told the talent relations office that he would take a later flight to perform at the pay-per-view that night. So this is like a massive for him, like in terms of like his job, there's a pay-per-view and he's supposed to be fighting for the heavyweight championship. So Benoit did not turn up for this event. On Monday the 25th of June, WWE was notified of the text messages that Benoit had sent to co-workers. So Chavo had got received some and Dean Malenko, I believe, had also received them. And then they bumped into the head of WWE's talent relations and said, did you hear from why Chris didn't turn up? And they were like, oh, we got these texts. So the talent relations office asked the Fayette County Sheriff's Office to check on the Benoit family. The police turned up and saw a neighbour and asked the neighbour if, if she'd seen anyone. And she said she'd not seen anyone for a few days. And they were concerned about the dogs because they didn't know if these dogs were going to rip their face off or anything. So they said, oh, like, we don't know what to do about the dogs. And she was like, oh, I look after the dogs all the time. I feed them when they're not here. So I'll move them. So she like hopped over the fence and took the dogs into like a separate area. And then she went in. Why on earth would the police let a neighbour, just that's like one, contaminate crime scene, if there is a crime scene, two, what if there's something awful? Like, anyway. So let's this woman, poor woman go in. And then she runs out screaming, saying, Daniel's dead. Daniel's dead. 
the police went in and they straight away were like, it smells like death. Something's dead here. After finding the bodies, the police notified WWE around 4.15 that day that three bodies had been discovered at the Benoit home and that the house was now being treated as a major crime scene. So this is what the police believe happened Obviously, no one was there, so they're having to just piece together what happened over those three days. It's believed that on Friday the 22nd of June, Benoit had a barbecue, and then later that evening, got into an altercation with Nancy and killed her. So her body was in the upstairs bedroom. It was tucked in a towel, and her limbs were bound with duct tape with a Bible by her body. The post-mortem showed that due to the bruises on her body, Benoit had pushed his knee against her back whilst tying a cord around her neck and then pulling it, resulting in her dying of strangulation basically asphyxia i think it said as well that like he actually broke her back because obviously he was like strong by pulling he he actually broke her back which is horrific it's not clear if nancy had any alcohol in her system because the amount of decomposition that her body had gone through by the time she was recovered uh, made it difficult to determine whether it was alcohol in a system or just byproducts of decomposition. Furthermore, the coroner found hydrocodone and alprazolam in her body, but they were found at therapeutic levels. They don't believe that she was sedated. So this becomes important when we talk about Daniel. I think having the Bible bio is quite sinister that he's almost like casting his judgment by putting a bible next to her like this is the way that i'm gonna sort of save you and like let your body go up to heaven almost i mean it's just awful really isn't it that he thinks putting a bible by the body is like any sort of gonna do anything that'd annoy me do not do that to me chris put a bible next to my body i'll put like katie price's biography (laughs) (laughs) just how i want to go it's unknown when daniel was murdered he was strangled to death in his bedroom and like his mother had a copy of the bible next to his body he had internal injuries to the throat area but no bruising which indicated that he may have been killed by a choke similar to the crippler crossface move that his father used in the ring so depressing it is isn't it it's just horrendous i remember being like being at school and this coming out and everyone was like what the it was just unfathomable forensic reports determined that daniel was sedated with xanax and likely unconscious when he was killed his body had started to show signs of decomposition but was not as far along as as his mother's so it's believed he was killed on the saturday so chris bonwaz killed his wife then put his child to bed and then the following day that's when they believe that he he gave him xanax and then killed him i guess the one tiny saving grace is the fact that he was unconscious yeah and sedated that hopefully he didn't feel any pain but still i think that's why they think that it was a sort of violent altercation that went not went wrong but like it was like an angry altercation that happened with nancy on the friday and then obviously he's then had to think like okay well he's come to the conclusion that he's gonna have to kill his, his son and but then that was done more considerate it's just like oh well i've killed one person so i might as well just end it all according to district attorney ballard and the sheriff benoit then slept in the house with the two bodies on the saturday night before searching on the internet for the quickest and easiest way to break a neck and also the resurrected son so the resurrected son is like a bible passage like a bible story so i don't know if he was delirious enough to think that that was gonna happen yeah i think that's sort of what i got like that it's related to the prophet elijah in the old testament and that he was just trying to figure a way of bringing his son back which does imply that he was not of sound mind at all and yeah just the fact that he did stay in the house for two nights i'm assuming he's panicking 
because he can't you can't as soon as he killed Nancy like what could you can't come back from that and I suppose the fact that he did Google and um, the quickest and easiest way to break a neck implies that it wasn't premeditated because he was basically he knew he had to kill himself yeah almost like this is how it's gonna end but I'm just gonna drag it out for a couple of days not drag but you know what I mean like because apparently as well, there was like loads of wine bottles everywhere, half drunk wine bottles, loads of beer cans. Like there was pictures on the documentary of these bins. I think that looks like my house normally. <laughs> but he, there was like, he was basically drinking for the whole three days as well. I'm guessing that's to just, I don't know, numb the pain. After the, he, he texted everyone his address. Well, not everyone. I didn't get a text. After he texts those five people his address, he went down to the basement with a half-drunk bottle of wine to his gym, and then he hanged himself using a weight machine by forming... Oh, I don't know why I'm giving tips. Like, it's like I'm explaining it. I, I mean, I don't even know what a weight machine is. Like, that's how much I go to the gym. I can't even imagine this in my head. He formed a noose out of the end of the pull-down machine, I guess the rope bit, round his neck, and then he put on, like, the heaviest weight. It was something like 250 kilos, when it was something ridiculous, don't know. And then released the weights, and his neck obviously, like, snapped, <sighs> causing his instant death. His body was found hanging by the pulley cable. I find it really hard to deal with stuff like that, like breaking necks and stuff. Oh, yeah. It really goes through me. I mean, at least that was a clean break. Well, not least. I don't know how I feel. I feel very tormented about Chris Benoit. There was no suicide note found at the scene, but one was eventually discovered in a Bible. God, he loved his Bibles, didn't he? Yeah, he it was discovered in a Bible that had been sent to his first wife, Martina, um, according to Benoit's father, who is actually quite, and I think has always been quite vocal and sort of open about talking about his son's death. Not in like a horrible media hall way, but like in a wanting to understand more kind of way. He said that it just, the, the note just simply said, I'm preparing to leave this earth. Again, you know, that's supporting the idea that it was premeditated or certainly that he killed Nancy and then Daniel's death was premeditated and his own. And there's also little clues in the letters to Eddie in the journal that he was writing to help him cope with his grief. It said things like, I will be with you soon. Yeah. And that was like, I mean, I don't think it said exactly when that was, but it was certainly two years before. So that must have been put in there from 2005 to 2007. So whether he always had in the back of his mind, like, this is my get out clause this is you know that's something that's going to happen mm. i mean that certainly su- supports the idea that he's so depressed he knows that he wants to kill himself and selfishly he's going to take his family with him so this is the monday everyone's dead they've been found by the police the police have said it's a crime scene they're doing their own little investigations but all, all wwe have been told is that benoit and his wife and child are dead nothing else because of the lack of any information because i think pretty much the police knew straight away that it was murder-suicide. WWE did not know. So WWE released a statement saying, The World Wrestling Entertainment was informed today by authorities in Fayette Country that WWE superstar Chris Benoit, his wife Nancy, and his son were found dead in their home. Authorities are investigating, but no other details are available at this time. Instead of its announced programming for tonight on USA Network... WWE will air a three-hour... That seems excessive. Sorry, that was me. That was not in the um, statement. They will air a three-hour tribute to Chris Benoit. Chris was beloved among his fellow superstars and was a favourite among WWE fans for his unbelievable athleticism and wrestling ability. He always took great pride in his performance and always showed respect for the business he loved, for his peers and towards his fans. This is a terrible tragedy and an unbearable loss. Ooh, cringe! <laughs> I know, I know. Like, obviously knowing what we know, but 
I just think they needed to have considered that things might not be as they seem. Like, obviously, they were thinking that it was someone had murdered them. Yeah. You, they just, you know what they need to do? They need to chill. They need to chill when people die and then do a tribute a week after. Yeah, exactly. Because it's almost like, oh, we were going to put something on. But actually, like we can't really do that now. So rather than just not show anything, we're going to put a tribute on. Like, it's just, it's almost like trying to get ratings. It's all about ratings, isn't it? Yeah. I'm pretty sure I watched that, participate in this. Yeah, because you would, wouldn't you? You'd be like, what the fuck? Yeah. Oh, they also said that they extend their sincere condolences and prayers to the surviving members of the Benoit family and their loved ones at this time of tragedy. Thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. So Vince McMahon dedicated that whole three-hour segment that Raw would have normally been in to the Benoit tribute. But the following day, so we're on the Tuesday now, it slowly started to come to light that Benoit may have had more to do with the murders than previously thought. So he was mentioned again on the ECW episode in a statement by Vince McMahon, and he sort of said... I mean, this is pretty awful. Not awful, but it's just a bit embarrassing, I think, for the whole company. He was like, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Last night on Monday Night Raw, the WWE presented a special tribute show recognising the career of Chris Benoit. However, now some 26 hours later, the facts of this horrific tragedy are now apparent. Therefore, other than my comments, there will be no mention of Mr. Benoit's name tonight. Or ever again. <laughs> On the contrary, tonight's show will be dedicated to everyone who has been affected by this terrible incident. This evening marks the first steps of the healing process. Tonight, WWE performers will do what they do better than anyone else in the world. Entertain you. Ugh, read the room. <laughs> I know. That is the last time Benoit has ever been mentioned. He's even cut out of wrestling clips. Like, if they show clips and he's fighting, they, like, don't even put a clip of him in or of his face or anything. You might just see his, like, leg or something. I mean, which is probably the right thing to do, but also the right thing to do would have been to hold off and not do a tribute show the day after. Yeah. It's strange being a fan and not talking about him or not hearing him spoken about when he was, like, one of... Like, and that's the thing. His peers... Like in the document, they're like, he was one of the best wrestlers ever. And it's so strange that he is not now mentioned. And it's, but it's hard because how do you mention him or do you include him but just don't really talk about him or say his name? But then do you show fights with him in? But then really can you show him doing a crippler crossface when it potentially did that to his child? But not only is he, has he been erased, like Nancy's been erased, which, you know, she was a bit of a pioneer, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, she was. A pioneer for like being like one of the first valets. She was like, one of the first female rep, like the woman, being a manager, female manager. There's a big, big emphasis placed on being put into the WWE Hall of Fame. They do Hall of Fame um, shows. And if you're still alive, if you're lucky enough to still be alive, yeah. you can attend if you're being um, inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. So she can't even be inducted. Like Jim Ross, who's like very famous, he was a announcer on WWE and he was like, she should be inducted in the Hall of Fame if anyone. But... How can you? Because she's got that last name, though. That's the trouble. Yeah. But, like, they were saying, weren't they, on the documentary that, you know, she could be woman. They could put her in the Hall of Fame. Or even, like, as a, a maiden name. It's just sad, because... I mean, because and then you, you you show clips and things. You can't show clips with her with Chris Benoit, but that was a massive part of her career. You know, it's very it's very hard. And the trouble is because there's so much ambiguity around his motives and, and what was actually going on. Because obviously, there's the things about steroids to consider. Didn't he have like a ridiculous amount of testosterone in his system from the toxicology reports? And obviously, that's part of what he had he felt he had to do to keep up the wrestling which obviously is his choice he's basically putting himself in a position where he's 
he's not making the right decisions because he's so full of hormones. I think I've got like five potential like things to talk about when we discuss his, like the whys. I'll just say this before we go into the whys. A memor- memorial service was held for Nancy and Daniel at Daytona Beach, Florida on July the 14th, 2007. Both were cremated and their ashes went to Nancy's family. Chris was also cremated, not at that event, but the fate of his ashes have never been publicly revealed. So let's get into the whys. Like you said, Chris... Testosterone. Well, I guess testosterone and steroids. Apparently, in response to him having very high levels of testosterone in his body, they said that because he had been on steroids for so long, it it can cause testicular damage. That's why they give you testosterone replacement therapy. So testosterone was found in his home, but it was actually prescribed for him. So it wasn't actually illegal. It was prescribed, but he had massive amounts. In response to the roid rage theory, the theory is that he uh, he's on steroids and steroids make you incredibly angry and he killed them in a fit of roid rage. That's one of the theories. So WWE said to this that the physical findings announced by authorities indicate deliberation, not rage. The wife's feet and hands were bound and she was asphyxiated, not beaten to death. By the account of the authorities, there were substantial periods of time between the death of the wife and the death of the son. Again, suggesting deliberate thought, not rage. The presence of a Bible by each is also not an act of rage. But I feel like that, like you said, that maybe it was that it's things spiralled, that he did the, he had the sort of rage attack on Nancy and that, then he was like, oh, well, how do I get out of this? And the only way he could see to get out of it was to take his son with him, like basically just take them all out. And Which often happens with family annihilators. There's like different types of family annihilators if you want to go into it and research it. But one of them is that something has happened, whether it's really bad debt or they've lost their job. You know, something has happened, usually to the man, usually to the husband. And because he does not, because he is so ashamed, that's why he kills the family and himself. So Chris Jericho is very close to Benoit, and he agreed with WWE and said that no one has roid rage for three days. But like you say, it might not be that he had it for three days. He had it Friday night for five minutes, killed his wife, and then shit. He also said, Chris Jericho, that after Eddie died, WWE's drug testing was super strict. It went through the roof. You couldn't even take a high-powered aspirin unless you had a prescription. And I'm not kidding. The drug testing was so strict. This rampant steroid use, dude, you can't. You can't snort cocaine or smoke weed or anything. That's fine. But then there was text messages. Do you remember on the documentary, there was text messages from Nancy to Chris saying, I'm not staying on this steroid roller coaster anymore with you, this sort of thing. So he obviously was still doing steroids. And apparently other wrestlers have said that WWE's, the wellness program that they put into place, it was actually, you could easily trick them. Like you could easily still take steroids. So that's one, one thing. Increased testosterone, roid rage. Second, I mean, it could be a combination of all these, probably is. I think it, I think it has to be. It's got to be. So second, repeated untreated concussions. Neuro- neurologists call this CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is basically constant damage to your brain. I mean, they showed it on the, this was something that came up in the documentary and it showed him like constantly getting hit in the head with a chair, like a steel chair, like again, again, again. When Chris Benoit died, committed suicide, his father was asked if they could actually, um, neurologists at West Virginia University, if they could actually look at his brain to see sort of what the condition was. So there's an ex-wrestler, Julian Bales, and he has become left wrestling 
after repeated concussions uh, and has become a neurologist, this was before Benoit died, was sort of chatting to him about CTE. And Crystal said, like, how many concussions do you have to have when it's, like, bad? And asking questions, he was like, I didn't, like, well, I had six and they really, really affected me. How many have you had? Say, asking Chris. And Chris said, too many to count. Like, he couldn't even remember how many concussions he had. He couldn't even remember. He also asked for this guy's number, neurologist's number, and said, like, oh, I'd be really interested in that. Bales later said that he did call him about it, but when he picked up the phone, it sounded like he was in the middle of an argument, Benoit, and he sounded sort of quite sort of distressed and he was like oh I'll call you back never did so he knew that Chris Benoit had an interest in this and he thought well one of the things I could do is have a look at his brain because I think that's actually what he probably wanted so Benoit's dad Michael said yep yeah, no problem they had a look at it and they said it was so severely damaged that it resembled the brain of an 85 year old Alzheimer's patient they did further tests on his brain tissue that revealed severe CTE, damage to all four lobes of his brain and his brainstem. Michael Benoit said that he believed that brain damage may have been the leading cause to, to the murder-suicide. But again, WWE released a statement um, saying dismissing this idea as speculative. Because, I mean, for them, they're like, shit. It's quite convincing, that evidence, that that must have had some impact on his mental state. And maybe that is why the depression that he had was so... Because if he's damaged the different lobes of his brain surely that affects his emotional responses and how he deals with things so it does sort of explain more his reaction to eddie guerrero dying and that it could have led to him basically killing his whole family he's literally got brain damage mm. one thing that wwe did say in response to that was also that dr amalu's claims that Mr. Benoit had a brain that resembled an 85-year-old with Alzheimer's, which would lead one to ponder how Mr. Benoit would have found his way to an airport, let alone being able to remember all the moves and information that he was required to perform in the ring. Such dicks, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> so they were like, no. But I mean, it is proven now, and there's quite a lot of American football players, rugby players here, that it, this is a big thing. Repeated concussions can eventually lead to prolonged brain damage there's the documentary about aaron hernandez the football player that that goes into all that sort of stuff because they believe that maybe he was affected by that sort of thing yeah it really is fascinating but they say that like it's speculative and they dismiss the idea but then they've changed the things that they do so they don't you're not allowed to hit people like directly in the face with a steel chair or or there's some sort of like way that they do it so it's it's not as damaging and you're not allowed to bleed anymore so they've definitely made it not as hardcore as it was one of the other things was alcohol so wrestler hardcore holly speculated in his own autobiography that alcohol may have played a part he traveled with benoit a lot and said that benoit always increased his drinking when he was having domestic issues with his wife wait a minute this hardcore holly it's a man i assumed it was a girl no it was a man (laughs) he had like little like bleached blonde hair like white hair Uh... the police said that at the crime scene there were multiple bottles of wine that were half drunk or more. But I mean, I don't think that's... It's not indicative of... I mean, I always have stuff like that. I've not murdered my partner. (laughs) I think that might have exacerbated, you know what I mean? If there's all these... He's got CTE, Mm. he's bloody got high levels of testosterone, he's drinking... But I don't think, I mean, no, I don't think that's the problem. He might have just not taken the recycling out recently. Exactly. It can pile up, can't it? He might be like my partner who just like leaves bottles of, multiple bottles of wine left all over the place. Oh. Or like put them on top of the dishwasher and not put them away. Oh, 
top of the dishwasher, don't. You're going to trigger me. <laughs> don't murder, Luke. <laughs> I always go, oh, it's a dishwasher fairy just going to come and pop that in the dishwasher, are they? Well, I open it because I think it must be full and he can't be arsed emptying it out. And then it's not and I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. There's literally no reason then why you've not just gone in. I know. Oh, furious. <laughs> so I've got two more reasons. Grief, like we said, Grief, depression. And I, again, I think you like you're saying that it's like that narcissism a bit like, I can't let the whole family go on without me. I'm taking them with me. Because obviously as well, when you've got such a strong religious conviction as that, where you're putting like Bibles down, he probably believed that he was going to meet everybody, you know, that he was going to kill his wife, kill his son, and then they'll all be happy together in heaven with Eddie. The last theory is that Kevin Sullivan, Nancy's ex-husband, killed them all. That That is apparently still rife, people saying that. I don't agree with it, but I just thought I'd mention it. (laughs) So he would have had to, like, presumably they still did, like, DNA stuff at the scene scene of the crime. There would have to be DNA from him present in the house. Yeah. And, like, the fact that it's completely set up, like, it would obvious that it's a you know a suicide that feels yeah it feels like too much moving of bodies and things for me i mean the only thing i want to say is how crazy the premature death rate of wrestlers is i was looking into this because obviously looking at cta and testosterone and everything and according to a study in 2014 by eastern michigan university who looked at wrestlers pro wrestlers who were active between 1985 and 2011 mortality rates for professional wrestlers are up to 2.9 times greater than for men in the wider united states population Oh my goodness. I know. And oh, and also that's they they've got the highest mortality rate than any other athlete in any sport. Whoa. Experts think that this is because of a combination of the physical nature of the business, that the, there's no off season, they get no downtime, uh, and also the drug culture of the 1970s and 80s and into the 90s contributed to sort of cardiovascular issues and things. But then you've also got like accidents as well because I remember Owen Hart he died, didn't he, doing like a move? Yeah. He was, Brett, he was Brett the Hitman Hart's brother. And that was like a big thing. But I mean, loads of people that I like, Crash Holly, he died. I mean, a lot seem to die of drug overdoses as well. Drug overdoses, heart issues, injuries in the ring. Do you remember the British Bulldog? Yeah, did he die? He's died, yeah. He had heart issues, heart, oh. like heart, heart problems. Big Boss Man died. Andre the Giants died. Rowdy Roddy Piper died of like a cardiac arrest. If you go on Wikipedia and type in just like premature death of pro wrestlers, I'm sure this um, wiki page will come up. And it's like a massive table. And it says like died under the age of 30, died under the age of 40. And it like lists them all. And there's so many. I mean, a lot. But I mean, it seems to be unequivocally suicide, overdose, uh, heart heart problems. So it's weird that people still want to like do it. Yeah, because I... I mean, I don't know what the money's like. I watched the Bret Hart documentary and he was like, so there's a big famous thing called the Montreal Screwjob in wrestling that's like really well known. It's basically Bret Hart decided to leave because he wasn't being treated how he thought he should be treated and WCW offered him more money. I think he said that Vince McMahon offered him a deal. 1.5 million for 20 years. Oh, that's not very good. So I'm presuming there's something to do with merchandise in that yeah there must be something like and then you get 100% of your merchandise or touring the ticket sales or something like that yeah because like Brett's pretty well off I think and he was like it was like said that it was a really good deal it was 1.5 20 years and I was like what that's a shit I probably earn more than that in 20 years <laughs> no I'm don't think I do <laughs> 
But it was. I don't think it's as big as when it was when I was watched it. It was. It was. It's, I don't think it's ever been as big as when I watched it. No, definitely not. No, I think that was like the golden era. More I talk about it, more maybe I think that it's to do with merchandise. Maybe they get all all the most of the merchandise. So if you become a big name. And you're obviously going to sell more and more T-shirts, more and more whatever. I mean, I had like a rock T-shirt. I had a little rock doll, rock cup, rock everything. Dwayne Johnson owes me loads of money. Aww. I would have loved to have seen you. You look like back in the day. Is there a picture of you like dressed up in your like wrestling getup? There must be. I remember one Christmas getting loads. I even got a book called like can you smell what the rock is cooking? Because he used to say that and it was an actual cookbook. Wow. Did you ever like... Get a cereal box or like some cardboard and make your own little bell. Oh no, don't think I did. Oh, we did that. I don't even think I had one. Maybe my brother had a bell. Don't think I did. But yeah, we definitely practiced on each other. Practiced wrestling moves. I'm not sure if I could remember how to do a figure four leg block. I'll try it out on Tom later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> take a photo, will you? <laughs> Put the washing in the drink washing. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Thanks for listening again. If you don't mind subscribing, that would be great. Leaving reviews is always nice. Um, Follow us on Instagram. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a periodical just to tide you over till the next one. And until next time. Goodbye. Bye. 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 B